Okay, so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, with the title, Walk Worthy of Your Call. Uh, this morning, most of the half of today, I actually spent with Regina's family because her grandfather passed away two weeks ago. So we had uh, a funeral service, followed by a graveside service, followed by an all-you-can-eat buffet, followed by I came to church and they're still at our place. It, it, you know how it goes when extended family are all together. So that's where we were at. But this started, you know, earlier this week. And so last night, we actually had some of the East Coast family people come. And uh, they were the ones that prepared a slideshow for Grandpa. And uh, what we then spent time doing was we looked over all these old photos. And it was like, oh, man, Uncle so-and-so looks like Tobias, you know, when they were kids. Or So an example would be this. This wasn't in the slideshow because this is not Grandpa. Um, but this was Regina when she was little. And that was Thomas when he was, like, one or something. Right, so they look like the same. So it, it'd be that kind of stuff. We're looking through like twelve minutes of slideshows, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, Grandpa looks like this person. Uncle looks like that, you know, kid." And and we're just spending all this time, you know, kind of uh, enjoying that uh, interaction. But then, what were we really doing when we were doing that? Well, we were looking at one generation, and then we were trying to imagine. Wait, when they were younger, how much did they look like the current generation? We were looking for likeness. We were looking for similarities and facial features. We were looking for things in which when we saw a face, we're like, that connects us to another face. And that's kind of funny. And that's kind of cool. And genetics is amazing, right? You're kind of thinking about all these various ways in which the pictures just kind of bring a smile to your face. Well, when we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, what the Apostle Paul did is he spent three chapters in a variety of ways to paint out and describe and explain what God's people look like. And so what they look like is a picture that then should translate into how the people in Ephesians, how the Ephesians, the people in Ephesus, how they are living. What they look like and how God has made them should translate into how they are making decisions and what their priorities are and what they're striving for and how they are living life. So we should be looking for similarities, that if you believe what the Apostle Paul taught in the first three chapters, then you will then pay close attention to how he continues to instruct the people in Ephesus on how they should live that out. There should be similarities. There should be resemblances to what you'll find. And so the book of Ephesians is fitting a format that is probably you know, familiar to many of you in terms of how New Testament letters are. They're called epistles. But it tends to break up into two halves, especially when Paul's the author of them. So the first half is where you have theology, you have doctrine, you have teaching. But then the second half applies all of that. It puts it into practice, and it points people to how you should live it out. And so now, guess where we're at? Chapter 4, starting from verse 1 through verse 6. So we are now transitioning into practice. But it's never in a vacuum. This practice is anchored and rooted and finds its similarities to what was taught in the first three chapters. That it doesn't just come from Paul's mind in a vacuum, but that because of what he described in the first three chapters, people that believe it should live it out in this way in the last three chapters. And so please join me with your years. Feel free to look on the screen. Um, I'm going to begin just by reading the first three verses of chapter four, starting from verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's always important and helpful to find out where the author is at, what circumstances he is currently going through. And you find that very clearly in the beginning of verse 1, that the writer, the Apostle Paul, he is a prisoner. And he's in house arrest when he is writing this. And so he is in process to eventually find himself in Rome, but currently he is under watch in house arrest, probably a Roman guard nearby. And he's not free to go, but he's free to entertain guests. And along the way, then, letters then come out through him, distributed to the churches that he's either ministered to, churches he's trying to reach, leaders he's trying to encourage, and those prison epistles includes then Ephesians. But he finds something really interesting here, how he says that he is a prisoner of the Lord. He could have said, I am a prisoner of Caesar. I am a prisoner of the Roman Empire. I am a, C- I'm a, I'm a prisoner of the local legislative authority that is holding me captive. But he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. So there's already something about Paul that is different than maybe the expectations that you would have of prisoners. I wanted to read to you this short passage from 1 Corinthians 4. Um, by the way, uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians when he was ministering in Ephesus. So there's that kind of connection there. He was free then. He was ministering in Ephesus for three years. But he then penned 1 Corinthians during that time. So Paul is talking about him and Apollos, who is his co-laborer in the gospel, and how people have treated them and viewed them. This is chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, starting from verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. We, that's Paul and Apollos, have become and are still, like, I'm sorry, I'm saying it again, are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So he's being treated horribly, right? But he was actually free then. So you would almost imagine that when he's a prisoner, it would be even more amplified that, oh, I'm, I'm stuck now, even behind these walls, under watch, I can't go anywhere. I must be the worst of the worst. I must feel like there's no hope in the world. But it is from that position that then he continues to write this. He challenges the Ephesians to walk worthy of their call. <coughs> Paul imprisonment should be something that discourages him if he viewed himself as just a prisoner of people trapped by the law. But he didn't see himself that way. He wasn't down by his circumstances. So it's from that position that you know that what he's saying is so meaningful because he of all people should be pitied. But he is actually exhorting people to walk worthy of the gospel and the divine calling that, has, that God has given to their lives. And so with that, I want us to look back a little bit because when Paul says walk worthy of the call, he is speaking 
in kind of a, a recap kind of way this series of theological truths that he had laid out in chapters 1 through 3. That there was a call that God has given to his people. There were things that God did to save and rescue his people that then leads to this point in chapter 4 where he's like, well, you are this in Christ, so live up to it. Strive up towards it. Rise up to the challenge and don't just settle in to your comfort and your circumstances. What are some of the things that we see? Well, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, you see that God's people are blessed saints, right? Because in the past, they were chosen and adopted into God's family by the Father. They became holy and blameless before the foundation of the world. God had predestined his people to be like him, to resemble him and to be part of his family. In the present, through the work of Christ, they have been redeemed and forgiven with a promise of inheritance. And going into the future, the Holy Spirit is working and active to preserve, to protect, and to seal them as members of God's household. So they are blessed saints. They are people that are being protected and watched over by God's hand. In chapter 2, we find that they are resurrected workmanship, that God saved them, that God raised them from the dead while they could not respond to him, but he raises them in the midst of their death and trespasses, and then he saved them so that they would serve him, that they would do the good works that he has prepared beforehand for his people that they were given life when previously dead, and that they are given a purpose. If you keep going in chapter 2, you find that they were also people that became reconciled to their enemies, their earthly enemies. Right? So Jews and Gentiles that didn't get along. In Christ, dividing walls came down. You are now one people. So they now have a community. They have a new family. And the walls that previously separated people, and the biases and the prejudices, they can all be washed away in the gospel. In chapter 3, you find that they are stewards and heirs of the gospel, which was portrayed as a mystery. In that before, God's people, the Jewish people, did not consider that the Gentiles were included, but now we know they are in Christ. And so this mystery gives them then a responsibility to steward the gospel well. And so our call, even as a church, to be a vibrant church of disciple makers comes from this, that we have a message, that we have a mystery to give to the nations. And this is through Christ. So you can see this high calling. You see God's plan. You see God's provision. You see God's purpose in saving people. So it's a very high call. To whom much is given, much is required. So what does this look like? And again, we're remembering that Paul is in prison right now, right? So what would you expect someone that's in prison? What would they write and exhort people to do and to be like? People who are free. He in prison is saying that you should live out your calling in this way. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's just put on the cap that he would be wearing for a moment. Okay? So for him to be humble when he's already in prison, I mean, the opposite of humility is pride, right? The sense of you know, self-centeredness, that it's all about me. What is he doing? When he is in prison, he is writing a letter to exhort other Christians, calling them to faithfulness and trust in Christ. He's trying to encourage them. 
he's not complaining about himself. So he's living this out, and he is exhorting them to do the same. How about gentleness? You don't see him bashing the authorities. You don't see him being critical and losing self-control, complaining about his circumstances. Because the opposite of gentleness is just being harsh and being difficult and being a complaining person. You don't see him doing that at all. And so he exhorts the Ephesians to gentleness. He is patient. I can't imagine patience being an easy thing when you're locked in house arrest. You know, if you have all the freedoms in the world and access to everything in the world, yeah, maybe patience, you want to keep things that way. But when you're just counting down the days and you don't even know when the end is, patience must be hard to come by, but yet he is exhorting the Ephesians to not just fall to the tyranny of their agenda, to what they think is urgent, but to be patient. Bearing with one another, to put up with each other, instead of just holding people to your idealistic expectations. Right? Now, it doesn't mean you don't have expectations of people. In fact, Paul is exerting his expectations now of God's people to live worthy of the call that God has given to them in Christ. But it's when they fall short, how do you respond? When people disappoint you, how do you treat them? Well, Paul's in prison right now, so he's been let down by a lot of people. But you don't see him making that the focal point. He's exhorting the Ephesians instead to bear with each other. How about maintaining peace? Being a peacemaker. Now, this is where if we see Ephesians 2, the peace has been won by Christ. So it's not us trying to create peace among enemies that don't like each other and we're supposed to kind of manipulate the situation. Politicians try to do that. But we're not called to do that. God has already given peace to his people through the work of Christ, breaking down dividing walls of hostility amongst cultural, traditional, ethnic enemies. If they're in Christ, they are one. So our job, especially among Christians, especially within FCBC Walnut, especially within Turf, is not to create an artificial peace, but it's to keep the peace that God has already given to us. So if there's ways in which we are not at peace or we're in conflict, we should work those things out. Not because we're trying to get something that, that we don't understand or that we don't have or we can't attain, but it's because we already have it in Christ. We are already family in Christ. We are already brothers and sisters in Christ. We have peace with God and with each other. So let's keep it. Let's keep that peace. Let's maintain it at all costs. It's always easier to maintain something than it is to try to create something. At the end, God wants us to rely on him for these little things in life that actually at the end of the day probably are the things that impacts and influences you the most in your relationship with others. Whether there's peace, whether there's gentleness, whether people are patient with each other, whether people put unbearable expectations on one another to be friends, to be in the same church, to be in the same group. Whether people are humble or about themselves, whether people care about the circumstances of others and care to help or they're just focused on their own situation and conditions and they want the focus to be on them. Tim Keller said this about humility and I think in some ways it covers the breadth of all of this that Paul is talking about here. But Tim Keller said this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself 
or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. And then the flip side of that is that then you're thinking of one another more. You're thinking of yourself less, and you're thinking of one another more. And that's how you can grow in all these various things in which Paul says, this is what living worthy of the calling looks like. Well, let's go on. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. So this is where then we get a little bit into the kind of the nitty-gritty then of then if we are united, what exactly are we united on? So this almost becomes like a reminder, like a catchy, you know, refreshing chorus of everything that was described before. Because that's kind of what it sounds like. It sounds like something that people would say, you know, if they were in the early church. It's just like a series of, you know, oneness statements. Uh, but he says this starting in verse 4, for all the ways in which God's people are united. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you see all those different things bolded and highlighted there, that the ones precede them all, but that these are all the ways in which you, if you are a follower of Jesus, share in unity and in oneness with another follower of Jesus, especially when you're in the same local church, committed to the same covenant, when you're in the same local church, committed to the same vision, that you definitely experience this, or at least it's there for you to pursue and to experience and to be a part of. So one body, this sets up what he's going to write shortly after this very well as he speaks about the body of Christ. If you're in a local church, you get to experience this where people are gifted in a variety of ways, but you're one body. We could be three language congregations. We could be multi-generational, but you could be one body because of the unity that we have in Christ. It is one Holy Spirit who regenerates you. It is one Holy Spirit that that gave you a new heart. It is one Holy Spirit that gifts you with spiritual gifts to use with one another, for one another, for the common good. It is one Holy Spirit that preserves and seals you until the day of Christ with this guarantee that comes from the Father. We have one hope, and this is key, because in chapter 2, Paul describes the situation before Christ in that we were people formerly without hope. That if you were a Gentile, that you were not only physically distant from the people of God, but in your religious and cultural traditions and prophets and writings and inspiration, you were separated from God's people. In your religious practices, in your temple sacrificial system, you were separate from God's people. So you're without help and you're without hope as a Gentile. But that's not true anymore. Because in Christ, you have one hope. You have one Lord, which means not even Caesar is Lord for the people of that time. And maybe for us in our time, not even celebrities should have that kind of lordship over us. Politicians, important people, people that take up places of idolatry in our lives. No, but you have one Lord. That's what we share in common. Everyone else bows before him as well. One baptism, which is why we do emphasize baptism in our church as a symbol, but as a very wonderful memory to look back on, to remember when you entered into the church physically through 
immersion through baptism. It's a beautiful symbol, and that's something that we share here. And you're able to think back to your baptisms as well. And then finally, one God and Father of all. So uniting every nation, tribe, and tongue, we are one big, happy, adopted family in Christ. You share all these things. This is the oneness, the unity that God's people share. And notice none of these things are what we strive for because we can never earn these things. But God has graciously given them to us in Christ. And so we can own it, we can embrace it, we can pursue it, we can maintain it, but we don't have to earn it. And that's how wonderful God is. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he prays for a variety of things. But as it pertains to unity and oneness, he prays for this. And this passage gives us hope, tangible hope. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in his teaching, in his prayers, the gospel we know will go forth beyond the Jewish people. That they, all of his disciples, all of the believers in the gospel may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is what Jesus prayed for his disciples, even though they had no idea in some ways probably what he was talking about, who he was referring to. But we are actually going to experience that today. If how we are united and what our unity looks like is centered and grounded and rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the unity is ours. What God has done, if you repent and believe it in, in Christ... It is yours. So we've been given much. And Paul is exhorting the Ephesians and exhorting us to live worthy of that call. And the rest then of this second half of Ephesians then will apply that to a variety of areas. The church, the home, all kinds of places in which you can live out your call. But you live it out in unity, knowing that that is from God. So then I want to come back to the questions and then break you guys off. Why is unity important in a local church? I want you guys to think about that a little bit. But, but get, get down to it beyond just, oh, well, it's nice for churches to be united. You know, think a little bit. Why, is it, why do you think it's important? Why do you think it should be valued for us? And then to then connect with your personal life, what are examples of unity and disunity in your life that you've seen in the local church? And again, I want this to be applied in the church first because that's the most tangible way by which we connect with this idea of the family of God and of the people of God is in the local church. So share about that. The second thing is if you get to the point of application, well, what are ways in which you can pursue unity? Because remember, your role is not to earn it. Your role is to keep it. So if there's ways in which it's fractured and there's disunity in your midst, and you can do something about it because it's not about pointing fingers at others. But it's examining your own heart. How can you pursue unity? Whether it's here in Turf as a primary community for you as a collegian, whether it's in our church family, if this is your church family, how can you pursue unity? And outside of that, maybe on our campuses and our other Christian communities where we have Christian friendships, how can you maintain a unity that is anchored and rooted 
in Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, for tonight, for reminding us both, Lord, of what Paul had taught in the first three chapters about the beauty and the power of the gospel at work, but also, Lord, just through his own life and his example, God, of how someone that believes what they are teaching Someone that lives for you rather than for themselves. Someone that transcends their circumstances as difficult as it is because they hold on to the hope that is in you. We just want to thank you, Father, for this privilege and opportunity that we have to consider these things. And we pray, Lord, that as we go to community groups, that you will examine our hearts so that we would think, Father, of ways in which both unity is important, but also how we, ourselves, and pursue unity in our lives. Thank you, Father, for everything that you're doing here in turf. And we pray, Father, that beautiful things would come out of this simple desire simply to obey your word and to pursue unity and to live worthy of the calling that you have graciously given to us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.